0: friends and colleagues, and welcome to episode 95 of Dermosphere, the podcast by dermatologists, for dermatologists, and for the dermatologically curious. I am one of your hosts. My name is Luke Johnson. I'm a pediatric dermatologist and general dermatologist with the University of Utah, and joining me, of course, is...
1: This is Michelle Tarvox. I'm an associate professor of dermatology and dermatopathology at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in beautiful, sunny Lubbock, Texas.
0: Michelle, it's the last episode of the year. Woo! So, this is our Dermy Awards. Woo!
1: Du, 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 du. <laughs>
0: Dermosphere started in summer 2018, I'm pretty sure, and at the end of that first calendar year, at the end of our just last episode of the year, we thought, hey, maybe it would be fun to create some awards for the articles and authors, et cetera, that we had discussed over the preceding six months. It was something that only lasted about 15 minutes that we tacked on to the end of one of our normal episodes. We called it the Dermy Awards, and then we decided it was a way better idea than 15 minutes. And so since that time, our last episode of every calendar year has been this award ceremony. Woo! It's a little bit different because this time uh, Michelle's got the tuxedo and I've got the evening gown. The pimping bell's got a great evening gown as well. I figure the pimping bell is a female because of a bell, right? It's the pimping bell, like la. B-E-L-L-E. <laughs>
1: Ah, see, I like that. That's very nice.
0: So we have twelve categories this year of awards to give out to authors, articles, et cetera, that we have discussed over the preceding year. So this year started in episode 70. So if you wanted to listen to the previous Derby Award ceremony, it's episode 69. So episode 70 to 94 are the candidates for contention this year again 12
1: categories and
0: michelle is going to kick us off with our first category
1: all right our first category is the coolest thing we learned our candidates for this wonderful award are aplasia cutis congenita from episode 85 derm in space from episode 93 Skeeter Syndrome from episode 90, and Neutrophilic Urticarial Dermatosis from episode 90 as well. And our runner-up is Skeeter Syndrome. Luke, you presented this article. Can you give me a little blurb?
0: Yeah, Skeeter syndrome is sort of bad cellulitis-like reactions to mosquito bites, and one reason I lobbied for it to be included in The Coolest Thing We Learned was because in the body of the article, they talk about how they were able to extract the saliva antigen to test their hypothesis, and they say, these antigens were prepared by dissecting the glands from the heads and thoraxes of approximately 370 female mosquitoes. In addition to just Skeeter Syndrome being cool,
1: that's cool. And it's also kind of metal when you think about what they had to do to get that data. So I thought that was impressive as well heavy on the foie. Well. Um, the other article that was a standout in this category and won the award is... <laughs> Derm in
0: Space! Woo! It's impossible <laughs> to talk about this article without saying it quite like that. Um, That was from episode 93, really recently, and uh, we had one of our medical student members of Team Dermosphere present that one, Eleonora Marcacci, and it was just not something I had really thought about much. Dermatologic conditions in astronauts, for example, they're minor, but also one of the most common medical conditions they report, things like irritant contact dermatitis or atopic dermatitis, and remember, they don't have much to work with up there. They may not have even topical steroids. And also, Eleonora said something I thought really interesting was that here on Earth, our skin is kind of like our spacesuit.
1: I like an that interesting concept. It makes it possible for us to have be alive on this planet. I like it. Our next category is going to be presented by Luke
0: Yes, so congratulations to our winners and to all the nominees. Our next category is most zeitgeistian article. Michelle, as the potential German speaker among us, what the heck is zeitgeistian?
1: Ah, die Zeitgeist. So Zeit is time, and Geist is like spirit. So what's really cute is if you go to anywhere in a German-speaking country um, around Halloween, they have the Geisterbahn, which is like a haunted house. But... Spirit of the time is what the zeitgeist means. So it's the spirit of the time or the thing that's sort of in keeping with the current spirit of things going on in the world. Very current and interesting.
0: And zeitgeistian is and not zeitgeist-ian. a word. We just made it we up. Made it up. <laughs> Most zeitgeistian article. The nominees, there's four of them, are from episode <sighs> 70, COVID boosters, mix and match for victory. victory. From episode 81. The Disney princesses article, wants an attractive face? Enlarge your eyes, shrink your nose and mouth. From episode 76, nicotinamide for NMSC prophylaxis. And from episode 78, people don't like how they look on Zoom. Those are our nominees. And our runner-up is people don't like how they look on Zoom. So Michelle. This is an art- Yes. I was going to say, you're
1: more cosmetically oriented than I am. Yes. So this is an article that we actually um, went over to discuss how people have had more interest in cosmetic services since the pandemic. And some of this has been attributed to the fact that more than any time in history, we have been um, forced to gaze upon our own visage for many, many hours in a day, often from a quite unflattering angle from below. And so in this article, we discussed with Dr. Kim Nichols, who's a guest on our show and was a lovely guest, that basically the popularity of video conferencing and their use especially for extended periods of time can have a deleterious effect on people's self-concept and can potentially drive them to seek cosmetic um, types of services, especially ones directed at addressing things that are worsened by the bad angle typically utilized by these kinds of video conferencing services, like double chins and skin laxity and things such as that, or periorbital darkness or hollows. So, uh, this is an important thing about human psychology. We in our modern world are increasingly facing stressors and pressures that have never existed for humanity before until the past 10 years, you know, video conferencing was a thing that we all saw in movies about the future when we were, you know, growing up with the Jetsons the or something like that with the teleconferencing. But the amount of time people spend on these things can potentially impact their self-worth, especially as they're confronted with their own reflection for long periods of time. So I thought that was very well done and uh, it was a nicely done study that looked at how people's focus of attention changed on video calls. There were also some ameliorating things suggested as well as um, potential corrections for some identified problems.
0: And the chief author, Tony Pikus, later came on to talk to us about some of her other research on body dysmorphic disorder. Also, even though I'm not sure if I agree, but some people are saying the pandemic is over. Maybe it is, (laughs) maybe it isn't. I'm just not sure if I agree. Um, Zoom is definitely still happening. So definitely a good winner for most Zeitgeistian article. But the number one winner is also cosmetic, The Disney Princesses article. Do you want an attractive face? If so, you should enlarge your eyes and shrink your nose and mouth.
1: This is another thing that touches on our modern technology and how it may be affecting our self-perception. And one of the things they identified in this study, which they utilized uh, patients' photographs and collage presented to different individuals for a fixed period of seven seconds. And the, the participants were to indicate the most attractive photo of a model in the presented collage. In this study, they found that Facial attractiveness increases with enlargement of the uncovered eye surface, as well as a reduction in nose and lip size. Now, one of the things I wonder about with this is, is there an impact with certain social media filtering devices that tend to do exactly that modification? They tend to make the eyes larger in size relative to the rest of the face. They tend to alter nose and lip size to make those more accustomed to the ideal. Um, They also talked a little bit about face shape, which is also potentially alterable by these platforms that start to make people look more like cartoons than humans. Um, So I think that this is something that we need to be cognizant of. Cosmetic surgeons, dermatologists, and plastic surgeons have also noticed an uptick of patients actually bringing in a picture of themselves with a filter applied and asking to be made to look like their filtered image. So I thought that that was very well done. And uh, the chief authors both have the same last fantastic name, Mateusz Prislipiak and Andrzej Przlipiak. I'm not sure if I said that properly, but I thought they did a great job.
0: Yeah. These filters can make people look literally like cartoons because if you think of Disney princesses, for example, and then like anime, Big eyes, small nose, and mouth.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And hopefully, our it's ne- a sign that perhaps the pandemic is over since COVID boosters mix and match for victory did not win the category of most zeitgeistian article.
1: We're hoping that the zeitgeist can move on from COVID and on to something more interesting for everyone. Like, our next Disney category. Princesses. I, I mean, if you got to have something to look at, a Disney princess isn't bad. So I know we've said the author... word Disney like
0: six times so far in this podcast. We should be sponsored, but we're not. <laughs> Hashtag not.
1: <laughs> Hashtag not sponsored by Disney, although I do enjoy their parks. Coolest author name is our next category. So before I we actually move, pick... so,
0: oh, Before I move on, as long as we're talking about sponsorship, um, my wife says whenever we mention something like that, we should say not sponsored yet.
1: <laughs> you know i mean you you don't know disney may have a great interest in dermatology and it brands itself disney dermatology make yourself look like a disney princess it's a cosmetic yeah. empire waiting to happen so disney's a funny name yeah okay <laughs> disney is a funny name speaking of names that are also growing up i always thought it was disnep because of the way <laughs> that disney writes my, the Y.
0: That's what my son Teddy thought when he was, you know, five years old or whatever. He also called it
1: Disnep. <laughs> I thought that a lot longer than until my fifth birthday, but I figured out it was just a funny looking why. Anyway, why not? So the cool, the coolest author names is our next category. And I actually picked an author name from our previous article about want an attractive face, enlarge your eyes, shrink your nose and mouth, or impact of face proportions on facial attractiveness. So from that article, one of their authors was Emilia lubovica and that looked so much like lubbock that i was like i have to pick that one so emilia lubovica is one of our first potential candidates for the coolest author name also included our dawn queen this was from the article patients like young prompt dermatologists we reviewed in episode 74 and then we had a suite of sweet names that our very own luke johnson saw and eyeballed on this on this single article, and as a suite of names, it was just too breathtaking to ignore. So to begin the suite, we have the inestimable name of Agatha van der Klaw, which if I was ever going to have a nom de plume, I might pick that to write murder mysteries under Agatha van der Klaw, because it just sounds like somebody who lives in a mansion, and you know there's fog there all the time. For some reason, there's always some kind of wolf howling in the background, and the moon is always behind it, no matter what time of day it is. So Agatha van der Klaw, in the same article, Matthew D. Snape, love that, and Saul N. Faust, and this was from the article: "COVID boosters, mix and match for victory, victory." So, who shall claim victory in this category, Luke? Well, our first coolest author name, the runner-up is Don Queen. Also, sounds like a character name in a very cool, like post-apocalyptic teen novel. I think I might have to write that. So, Don is- Queen.
0: D A W N Queen, like perhaps the Queen of the Dawn. It's exactly. Great.
1: See, or Queen of the Dawn, also a great. You know, Agatha Vanderclaw's next bestseller is going to be called Queen of the Dawn. So she is the runner-up, Miss Dawn Queen. And then the winners are, as a group, Agatha Vanderclaw, Matthew D. Snape, and Saul N. Faust, for COVID boosters mix and match for victory. They were victorious and won. Very nice.
0: I just thought that those names altogether sounded like a group of supervillains. Agatha (laughs) Vanderclaw, Matthew Snape, Saul Faust. I'm sure all of you are very nice people and not supervillains, but a cool group of people to be on that article. (laughs) I love that. All right. Our next category is category number four is our most intellectually interesting article category. So we talk about a lot of articles. And these are the ones that we found most intellectually interesting. So in episode 78, we discussed that bile acids inhibit interleukin-17. Perhaps that's how they might work for psoriasis, for example. In episode 88, we discussed an article on non-melanoma skin cancer, among other things. It brought the question, do actinic keratoses actually turn into squamous cell carcinomas? And that rattled the foundations of my dermatologic knowledge because, of course, we're all taught, well, the reason we freeze them, the reason we put Epidex on them is because they have got a chance of turning into squamous cell carcinomas, which is bad. You don't want cancer, do you? But among other things, this article said it's controversial whether or not AKs actually turn into squamous cell carcinomas. Hmm. Hmm. And while you muse on that, you can also muse on muse cells, which we discussed in episode 72. So muse cells are a particular type of stem cell that were used in mouse models of atopic dermatitis to some interesting effect. And then finally in episode 76, also speaking about different cell lineages for atopic dermatitis, the fibroblasts actually play a role in atopic dermatitis. Never would have thought so, but this article says they do. So our runner-up for most intellectually interesting article is Muse Cells. Michelle, you nominated this one.
1: Yes. The uh, the Muse Cells are uh, potentially a therapeutic target that we might be able to look into in the future to help kind of address some of the problems with atopic dermatitis. So these are multi-lineage differentiating stress-enduring cells. They're a type of pluripotent stem cell that might have the potential to treat inflammatory skin disease and may be a therapeutic target for that. Um, They potentially could alleviate scratching symptoms and reduce epidermal inflammation through their expression of the um, different anti-inflammatory cytokines. And I thought that it was a very interesting uh, article. It was very well done, kind of basic science. It was a little bit, you know in depth to go through in a short period of time, but I thought that it was a very interesting article. Did you have any um, ex- exciting pieces of wisdom about it?
0: I do not. Nothing more <laughs> exciting than you.
1: Oh my goodness. Well, I thought it was cool that they were actually able to have anti-inflammatory effects in uh, healing wounds, and they were also able to antagonize some of the inflammation that can be engendered by lipopolysaccharide induced uh, pathways in human cells. So. Very interesting potential therapeutic agent for the treatment of atopic dermatitis.
0: I do kind of like Muse, the band.
1: I do like them. I like them very much. There's a couple of really cool songs that they sing. There's one of a... We will not fall. Yeah. Yes, that one. Okay,
0: but our winner and most intellectually interesting article is fibroblasts and atopic dermatitis from episode 76. Michelle, another one that you nominated. you want
1: to tell us why mm-hmm. this should be the winner? Of course. So the fibroblasts article was really interesting to me because of the fact that you don't think about fibroblasts playing any kind of role in the development of atopic dermatitis. We kind of tend to conceptualize it as a condition caused by inflammation and expressed through the keratinocytes. But in this Study, they actually found that in human atopic dermatitis skin samples, the human atopic dermatitis fibroblasts overexpressed CCL11 and that caused perturbation in the IKKB and F kappa beta signaling pathway. Monoclonal antibody treatment against CCL1 was actually helpful in reducing tissue eosinophilia and TH2 inflammation in a mouse model and dysregulation of these special fibroblasts, which they refer to as PX, sorry, PRX1 positive, which is for paired-related homeobox1 positive fibroblasts, targeting these actually may be a therapeutic option for patients with atopic dermatitis. So I thought it was very cool because it's sort of foundationally different than how we think about atopic dermatitis, and it may offer also a therapeutic pathway.
0: It's also a nice reminder that the human body and the cells in it and all of their molecules bouncing around are, continue to be a mystery and a wonder. We can think we understand something really well and have really good medicines for it, And then something like this comes up, and we realize that the frontier is farther away than we thought. And I like that as well.
1: Well, another really cool thing about it, too, is that it shows sort of the way that our knowledge and understanding of these conditions changes over time. We used to think, for example, that psoriasis was a keratinocyte disease. We didn't understand the role of the inflammatory immune system in that disease process. And so we even used to do things like dose the methotrexate for the division time of the keratinocytes instead of knowing that we were targeting the inflammatory cells. So I think as we gain further understanding as to how all of our tissues contribute to these different inflammatory pathophysiology pathways, we might have better targets for therapeutics. Thank you, scientists. You make our lives more interesting through science. Speaking of science, sometimes things that advance science are things that are easily consumable by the masses, such as images. See, it was a long walk, but I got there. So our next category is Coolest Image. Um, Our candidates are Longitudinal Melanonychia in Children. This was an episode 83. Trichoscopy from episode 75. Preritic and Dyskeratotic Dermatoses from episode 92. And Child Abuse abuse Mimics from episode 91. The runner-up is longitudinal melaninikia in children. So this was episode 83. We picked this article because it has an excellent representation of the broad and varying degrees of longitudinal melaninikia that can occur in children and still be a benign presentation. It is a striking article because of the wealth of images presented, as well as the ability to pair those with the Onychoscopy, Onikos, which is the dermatoscopy of the nail unit itself. I thought that was a great article to keep as a reference as well. The winner in this category is, drum roll please, Luke. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for humoring me. I appreciate it. The update on trichoscopy integration of terminology by systematic approach and a proposal of a diagnostic flowchart from the Journal of Dermatology 2022 by authors Mikasi Kinesho, sorry, Kinoshita I think Issei, and Muskan Sachdeva. This is an excellent article that has some really beautiful figures for the types of findings you can see utilizing trichoscopy and has a great flowchart for how to kind of analyze those. So I thought this was very meritorious of coolest image.
0: And the nominees that didn't win still had cool images. Remember the paritic and dyskeratotic dermatoses from episode 92, that was the peacock plumage that you can see on histology, it's pretty cool. And then child abuse mimics sort of cultural practices and things that can kind of look a little bit like child abuse, but are not. Also helpful to know. Mm-hmm. Speaking of images, our next category, category number six, is the grossest image. And remember, of mm-hmm. course, in dermatology, grossest is definitely a compliment. You want to oh, be oh yeah badge in of honor. Somewhere. Absolute badge gross of honor. Gross and micro at AAD, for example. <laughs> um. So we have three nominees in this category. Um, Trichodysplosia spinulosa dermoscopy was, I'm afraid, our nominee who did not win, but was still gross. Michelle, you're the dermoscopy expert. You want to explain why this one was Gross.
1: This one was just such a cool image, so we we picked this one because of the trichoscopic image, uh, because we felt like it could potentially highlight a little bit of trypophobia in some people. So for those of you who don't know what that means, um, which I'm I know everyone knows what that means, but if you if you just aren't familiar or you forgot, trypophobia is like that pathological fear of holes. So it's kind of one of the reasons why. Um, some zombie movies are so scary because there's all these holes in these people's faces. And there's images that have been made specifically to activate people's trypophobia, which includes our like kind of Photoshopping a Lotus pod, which has like an array of big holes in it onto a person's face. And there's actually a lot of memed and viral images that have that kind of um, alteration on them with the intent of making people uncomfortable due to trypophobia, which I thought was pretty an interesting way to do that. But the article has some great images. It shows, of course, the clinical first of the trichos- of the trichodysplasia spinulosa, which is caused by a polyomavirus. So we actually had two Two images in the, the previous category, well, the previous category in this category related to polyomaviruses the um, human polyomavirus and the peacock perikeratosis for the paritic and dyskeratotic dermatosis, and then here the trichodysplasia spinulosa virus. So the clinical images show what you typically see in this condition papules on the face associated with overlying hyperkeratotic spikes. And then the der- the trichoscopy or dermoscopy showed perifollicular hyperpigmentation, which was quite significant, along with central white circles and bright white spicules emerging from those holes. So I thought that was a good candidate for grossest image, especially if you suffer from trypophobia.
0: So is it called trypophobia because you're worried you're going to trip and fall into the holes?
1: That's a great question. Um, I think it actually has to do with the the root of the word meaning making a hole but because like terra painting is also putting a hole in the frontal scalp but i or the skull but i shall look that up and you um can proceed with the discussion of who won and i will update you
0: well our runner up is from episode 91 Bullus hemorrhagic dermatosis so Yay! this is
1: a condition Not fun that to can have become... interesting to look at <laughs>
0: But it's not too dangerous, right? So that's the key. This is a condition that can show up when people are anticoagulated with various heparin derivatives and can look kind of bad and perhaps gross, but it's not bad. Michelle, you said you saw a fair amount of this during your training.
1: Yeah, it's it's really not terribly like... I'm, I'm so sorry. I was looking up the um, origin of trypophobia and I didn't hear what you just said. <laughs> I said you
0: saw a fair amount of bullous hemorrhagic dermatosis during your training. Bullous hemorrhagic
1: dermatosis. Yes, I did. Absolutely. So um, so this condition can occur with anticoagulants. And since I trained at the Cleveland Clinic, which loves to put people on anticoagulants because many, many, many of them have some kind of cardiovascular problem that's being addressed, which often requires the use of these medications, we saw this with, we saw this with some frequency.
0: All right. And there was a runaway winner that was obviously the right choice for grossest image. And that was xylazine induced ulcers, just from our last episode, episode 94. This poor woman was injecting xylazine laced fentanyl into her legs. They were all necrotic and ulcerated from knee to ankle. It was definitely gross. And if we had such a category, it would also have won for worst presumed odor <laughs> yeah. I don't think we're allowed to actually put the images up on our website or anything because of copyright but uh check that one out and you will agree the grossest image
1: and just in case you were wondering so I was correct so trip so trippa means drilling holes so like People used to do that for when people had, you know, demons in their brain. They used to do that even like a long, long, long time ago. There are very ancient skulls that have evidence of that. So tripa means drilling holes and, of course, phobos is fear. So that's trippophobia.
0: I would be afraid of somebody who wanted to drill a hole in my skull, but I don't think I'm afraid of poppy
1: seed pods or whatever. I mean, who wouldn't, you know, who wouldn't want a hole drilled on their head, right? Um, So our next category is most pimpable articles. So I shall have to give the pimping bell her little... Moment in the sun here. Most pimpable articles. First candidate was cafe olay screening from episode ninety. Um, basically, this described a cafe olay screening clinic where people could go have their. Patients looked at and determined if this was indicative of a genodermatosis or something more concerning, and the article gave some good pearls for teasing out whether or not a uh, patient's presentation with cafe macules were worrisome for conditions such as neurofibromatosis or Legeus syndrome. They also talked about things that aren't cafe macules and the value of some kind of specialty clinic to help evaluate these patients. Uh, another candidate in this was our very nice visit with Sean Quatra as he discussed his CME articles about pruritus in episode 73. We also discussed Aesop syndrome. Luke, I think, was this yours or was this mine? This one was
0: mine. So this was the funny-looking plaque that overlies a neoplasm in the bone, basically. So if somebody has a strange-looking, reddish-brownish, maybe morphia like spot, especially middle-aged to older person, especially on the trunk... You might want to get an X-ray of their underlying bone because there could be like a plasma cytoma underneath it. And then they need significant workup. That spot needs to be biopsied. They probably need a bone marrow biopsy. They need a whole bunch of labs to make sure that they don't have like a perineoplastic sort of cancer syndrome.
1: And then our final candidate in this category was allergen alternatives, which we um, covered kind of in some depth. And it was a a well-presented article that talked about things that you could use if a patient had an identifiable contact allergy to a a particular topical product. And without further ado, the runner-up is (laughs) Allergen Alternatives. So Luke, this was your article. Did you have anything you wanted to say about it?
0: Yeah, we discussed this in what we like to call a mini-series from episodes 72 to 76. And it starts off by telling you that you don't necessarily have to use this article. The um, North American Contact Group Society, Contact Dermatitis Society, they have uh, resources like an app or a website where you can plug in what you or your patient's allergic to, and then it will come up with a list of alternatives, things, you know, shampoos or band-aids or whatever they're allergic to that don't have that product. You have to be a member of their group, I think, so it like an annual fee if you're an attending physician it's free if you're a resident so you might want to look into that Um, and then this article also has a load of tables of things that you can use that don't have particular ingredients everywhere from footwear to sports to adhesives and it was got a lot of stuff in there so if you've got a patient who's allergic to something you might want to open that up and tell them what they can use and of course if you're feeling like a jerk, you can pimp your residents on, oh, well, this person's allergic to acrylics. What could they use instead?
1: I love that. I think that's so, help, so useful to help patients because usually that's what they're asking for. Like I have one patient that's on this epic quest to find an eye cream she can tolerate. And this kind of thing can be helpful in avoiding problems for those patients. And May I recommend yeah.
0: petroleum jelly?
1: That's what we've been trying to have her use. She's she's a little bougie for that. And she's just not not super super fond of that suggestion. But, and then our winner is brrr, the inestimable Sean Quatre and his CME articles about ferritis. This was a wonderful discussion with Sean Quatra. I can't really do his discussion justice. I would urge you to listen to the episode. He's sort of the master of itchiness. I'm sure this I definitely is a title have he wants referred to, to those
0: articles uh, several times. Um, Since then, just while I'm in clinic, especially older people who are itchy without an obvious reason, I think, okay, Sean was telling me about like this compounded amitriptyline, lidocaine, ketamine cream, let me remember what that was about, what the percentages were, and there was a percentage of eosinophils that people could have, and if it was higher than that, then he thought they were a good candidate for dupilumab. And if it was lower than that, then it was gabapentin instead. Um, so a lot of good pimpable content and a lot of good clinical pearls and pathophysiology in that article. Plus, it was great to talk to Sean. He's a well-spoken guy and knows a lot about itch. And we've had the pleasure of having him on twice. So thanks, Sean, for being here. And congratulations on writing the most pimpable article. <coughs> All right. That's a pinging bill salute for Sean. Yeah. I, I guess I'll also mention, I briefly thought of including a category like coolest guest or best cook guest or something like that. But obviously we couldn't have that category because they're all so great. They all should they're win. All the but, exactly. Uh, we've, we've had some really great guests on. So thanks everybody for, for joining us on the podcast. Um, Next category ep- or category number eight is Article Most Helpful in Daily Clinic. And it pleases me to tell you all that this was a really hard category for Michelle and I to figure out. And the reason that pleases me is because this is really the goal of the podcast. I think it's cool to talk about intellectually interesting articles and stuff like that, and things that are just cool. But our, really, our driving motivation is to bring you stuff that you can use in clinic tomorrow. And so article Most Helpful in Daily Clinic really hopefully gets that across. So we pared it down to five nominees, which were as follows. In episode 84, terbinafine is okay in liver disease. This was uh, an article. Well, I'll just go through all the nominees first, I guess. So in episode 78, we talked about Timolol does work for hemangiomas. In episode 86, the best systemic treatments for androgenetic alopecia. Also in episode 86, isotretinoin lab monitoring guidelines. And in episode 79, suicidality decreases while on isotretinoin. So the runner up for article most helpful in daily clinic is isotretinoin laboratory monitoring guidelines from episode 86. So one of the reasons that the isotretinoin article one is because we just use so much isotretinoin plus because of this, iPledge pledge system in the United States, since we have to see our patients every month while they're on it, it's also just like on our radar a lot more than it would be otherwise. Cause we're constantly reminded of it. And this was a Delphi consensus among like 25 or something acne experts from around the world who all pitched in their ideas about what is appropriate for laboratory monitoring. So it's nice to have some guidelines and basically what they say is it's reasonable to check ALT and triglycerides before you start and at max dose, like after the patient's been taking their goal dose for a month. So if you're looking for a guideline about something to do, that is a good way to start. And again, we do so much of it. That's quite helpful in Daily Clinic. And then our winner for article Most Helpful in Daily Clinic is the other isotretinoin article. Suicidality decreases while on isotretinoin from episode 79. (sighs) So this was a big data study that looked at tens of thousands of people and found that the incidence of suicidal behavior actually decreases while people are on isotretinoin Compared to the general population and compared to themselves, both before and after they're on the medicine. It's kind of some interesting th- nuance there as well. Like, why would it increase again after they're off the medicine? Which we discussed a little bit about why that might be um, when we discussed that article in episode 79. But I find this quite helpful in daily clinic because I talk about it basically every time now since reading that article with any patient who's going to start isotretinoin. I walk through all the side effects, and then I say, finally, there's a warning on the medicine about depression and suicidality. There's been a lot of research into that, and in my opinion, the best and most recent research, meaning this article, shows (laughs) that the medicine does not cause an increase in depression or suicidality. And then I say, however, some people seem to get moody on it, which I will say is true just anecdotally. And so if you're on it, we will always ask you about your mood, and we need you to be honest so that we can keep you safe. But this article is great for reassuring people, especially people who have had a history of depression or suicidality, because I do believe the medicine is still safe for those people, of course, with appropriate monitoring. I love it. I also want to briefly mention our nominees and why they became nominees. Um, So, terbinafine, okay, in liver disease in episode 84. So, sometimes we get nervous about terbinafine, even in people without liver disease. I think the weight of evidence these days says we don't need to be worried about that. And then this article said that even in people with fairly significant liver disease, including just alcohol substance use, for example, as an aside, sometimes we tell people, don't drink while you're on this medicine, but this article says it's okay, even for people with alcohol abuse disorders, Um, just monitor their labs a little bit more frequently, but you'll probably be fine. Um, Timolol does work for hemangiomas. There's been some back and forth on this. This is one of the nice things about this podcast. I think I've been able to synthesize a lot of this data and talk to some people about it. And so, in my head, I came to this conclusion that really the reason why, in some studies, Timolol works for hemangiomas is because of the vehicle and formulation. So, I basically no longer use the Timolol gel forming solution eye drops unless the hemangioma is actually on the eyelid. I instead get Timolol 0.5% hydrogel compounded from my local pharmacy, and I have parents put it on three times a day, thin layer to the entire hemangioma, because that was the formulation and protocol that worked in the articles where it worked. And then the best systemic treatments for androgenetic alopecia in episode 86, you know, talked about finasteride and dutasteride and minoxidil and all of that. And I think the best thing to take away is dutasteride is possibly a little bit better, but it's hard to say for sure. So finasteride is probably fine, especially just since it has more um, data to support it. But probably the best thing to do is finasteride plus minoxidil in your patients.
1: I concur. I thought all those were such good articles. Um, with the compounded Timolol that you're getting with the hydrogel, how much is it costing for the patients?
0: It's 40 to $50 for, I believe, a 30-gram tube. So depending on the size of the hemangioma, that can last them one month or maybe two or three months. It's more expensive than if the insurance covers the Timolol eyedrop stuff, but still affordable for most of my patients.
1: And is it like your chemistry RX or something local?
0: It's something local. I'm not sure if you can get it from one of these national compounding pharmacies. One interesting thing about that formulation that a patient's parent brought up to me a few weeks ago is that it forms kind of a film over the top. So she was like, every time I put it on, I have to like first take off the film. And I was like, really? And she was like, oh yeah, look, I haven't done it yet today. And she pulled off this little film from the kid's hemangioma. So I emailed the um, pharmacist about it who is helps concoct this stuff and he was like yeah that's from the polyethylene glycol i think that's part of the formulation and this formulation is something i got from the article so that's supposed to be in there Um, but it was kind of interesting he said yeah it probably would work better if they peeled off the film first are your patients getting better and i said yeah it does seem to be working he was like okay great i assume the subtext is why are you bothering me (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> the polyethylene <laughs> glycol um, might also be helpful because it helps things p- penetrate through the stratum corneum, so it might be able to get the drug to the tissue a little better.
0: Yes, I liked that p- comment that you made when you we were discussing that article that, you know, the 0.5% gel-forming solution is really formulated to go in the eye. It's an eye drop, and we're co-opting it for the skin, so it makes sense that something that's specifically formulated for the skin
1: with ingredients that can help penetrate through it would work better. Well, speaking of interesting thought processes, Luke, the next category is studies I wish I had thought of myself. So these are the ones that we read that we go, dang it, that's a good idea. And it's you, you're almost like, it's such a good idea, you almost get mad and you're like, why are you so good at this? So the studies that we thought, that we wish we'd thought of ourselves included the vitamin D and PDT article we reviewed in episode 92. This was a very interesting article where it went over the utilization of high-dose oral vitamin D pretreatment prior to treatment with debridement and then photodynamic therapy. And they found in the study that the oral vitamin D pretreatment significantly improved actinic keratosis response to PDT with good tolerance and safety. That was a well-done article uh, by a former, um, well, still always, a, always a mentor, a former faculty member of mine at the Cleveland Clinic, Ed Mayton who's a big PDT thought leader. Uh, so I thought that was an excellent article. I didn't pick that one for this category. Luke did, so hashtag no conflicts of interest there. Um, the next article is famotidine and ketotifen for melasma. This was interesting pathomechanistically. Um, so ketotifen is an interesting drug. It's only available in the United States as an eye drop. It's an, anti, it's an antihistamine as well as a mast cell stabilizer that's available in other parts of the country orally. This study was done out of Brazil. But in this study, they utilized um, oral ketophtatin as well as oral fomotidine in the treatment of patients with facial melasma and noticed a statistically significant improvement over placebo in the study. So I thought that was nice and well done. Our and you next wish you had option, thought of
0: it yourself. And I
1: really wished I'd thought of it. Of course, I couldn't do this one with the oral famotidine, but I have thoughts. Isotretinoin lab testing is unnecessary. This is an article we reviewed in episode 88 that basically went through um, the levels of evidence that we have for the myriad of tests that we put people through on isotretinoin and came up with the hypothesis Luke is quite fond of, which is less poking of the patients and less um, money spent on lab tests that we probably don't need. I do think that most of our lab testing in isotretinoin patients either doesn't do much besides gently reassure some parents that you know nothing is wrong on the inside of the child. Sometimes that's worth it, uh, but. It's nice to not have to put patients through unnecessary blood draws if possible. And then our final category, our final um, candidate in this category was the MRI results in congenital melanocytic nevi and risk factors for what might make it more likely that a patient will have some kind of CNS involvement with congenital melanocytic nevi. And the runner-up is... Vitamin D and PDT. I thought this was a very interesting study. I like the utilization of vitamin D in this way. It's also a kind of low risk, easy buy-in type of in- intervention for the patients. And I think it's something that can be easily implemented by most practices that, that do PDT without a lot of difficulty. And then our winner was isotretinoin lab monitoring is unnecessary. This was your favorite article, Ooh. I think. Well, I wish I had
0: thought of it myself, because I've been standing on a soapbox about isotretinoin lab testing being unnecessary for the last three years, but I didn't bother to do any studies about it. So thanks to these authors for, uh, I guess I won't say proving me right, but validating my position, at least in some ways. So after literature review, they feel that in otherwise healthy adolescents and young adults, like we're talking early 20s probably... Isotretinoin laboratory monitoring is unlikely to do anything except drive up healthcare costs and poke people in the arm and stuff. For older adults and people with comorbidities, it's certainly more useful. And remember, previous study says ALT and triglycerides. Also, Michelle, you said that you had actually had thought of this study like 10 years ago.
1: Uh, Well, you know. I, I was uh, fortunate to be a faculty member at St. Louis University for three years um, after my residency training. And one of the cool things they do there is that they actually have a very robust um, tradition of resident research. So every resident has to have an IRB approved research project for each year. At least that's how we did it when I was there. And one of my mentees' projects was looking at lab monitoring in isotretinoin and trying to determine if there were signals that showed worrisome findings that that would necessitate the frequency of testing that we did. And of course, back then, we were doing everything kind of by the testing recommendations of the time, which was before the treatment and at every visit thereafter. Um, I always try to minimize, like I said, blood draws for patients. And some of the findings that we had in that preliminary research kind of showed us that um, it would probably be safer to... Or safe to lay off with some of the blood draws in these patient populations. And then the other part of the study was also looking at the barriers people go through to get to the isotretinoin. And we found, for example, that like female patients tended to have extra therapeutic inv- interventions compared to male patients because of the difficulty of You know, the discussion around birth control and the enrolling has to kind of wait a month because you have to prove they're not pregnant to the U.S. government, which is such a weird thing to have to do, Um, but it was a very well-done study, and so this was just a small single center study. I'm so grateful that people have put in the work to show on a broad scale that this policy is a safe way to take care of patients and minimize um, unnecessary blood work, so I was really pleased to see the study and very happy that we can help our patients without hurting them. Our next
0: category is category number ten out of twelve, and it is the most impactful article. Four nominees here: oral surveillance study of Jak inhibitor risks from episode seventy nine, baricitinib trials for alopecia areata from episode eighty seven, cutaneous manifestations of child abuse from episode eighty nine, and dress leads to autoimmune disease from episode seventy five. So, most impactful article. Our runner-up is cutaneous manifestations of child abuse. Mm. So I don't want to bring us down too much, but I mean, obviously child abuse sucks. And obviously it's important for us to recognize it. So I don't like thinking about it. This was a hard article for us to discuss at the time in episode 89, But we're doctors, after all. It's part of our job to deal with some tough things sometimes. So being able to recognize it when it happens is important. One of the most important things that came out of this for me is any bruising in a baby before six months, basically, before they can kind of crawl around, should raise suspicion. And I think our eyes are used to just kind of skipping over minor looking bruises because everybody else in the world gets minor bruises. But you shouldn't just skip over them in a, a little baby like that.
1: Yeah, and I thought that also the figures in the article were extremely well done. And the illustrations, or the photographs, I'm sorry, are an excellent reference for people. I did want to um, applaud the authors for putting this out out into our literature and utilizing this as a tool and reference for our membership because it's a very important topic. So um, Jane Grant Kell's Nina Livingston, and then the primary author was MPH, uh, Catherine Bentevigna, and all of them did a a wonderful job in this article. I think it's something that all of us need to be very literate in because we may be the difference between a child surviving or not, you know, in in an abusive situation. So a, a sad thing to have to know about, but an excellently done article to help us take the very best care of our most vulnerable patients. All right, so on to something more uplifting. Luke, did you Wait have a second? And we haven't talked about the winner for oh, most no. impactful. Oh no, I'm sorry. Article. I got like so. I got so emotional and verklempt. I like I was like, all right, we're done with that. Next one. No, let's have the winner. Yes, it's a very <laughs> important thing as well, and also potentially affects children sometimes. So
0: <laughs> So the most impactful article um, is the oral surveillance study of jack inhibitor risks. I think this is probably the clear winner here because it's caused such a splash in the world of dermatology and rheumatology and probably GI and stuff too. This is the study that got the black box warning put on these new medications, the JAK inhibitors. And we went pretty deep on this discussion. And I think this particular study, it's important to go pretty deep on because sort of the top line is patients who were on tofacitinib for rheumatoid arthritis had more adverse outcomes than patients who are on a TNF inhibitor for rheumatoid arthritis. And so now there's this black box warning that says, look out for major cardiovascular endpoints and stroke and malignancy and thromboembolism in your patients on JAK inhibitors. But as we discussed in some detail in episode 79, probably the biggest thing to look out for is the demographics. So this study was all patients with rheumatoid arthritis. All of them age 55 or over, I believe it was 55, could have been 65. Um, they were all also on methotrexate in addition to their JAK inhibitor or TNF inhibitor. And so uh, that is a very specific patient population. And does, that, the, does the risk in that population translate well to, for example, the 17-year-old patient I saw yesterday who wants to start a JAK inhibitor? Probably not, would be my argument, and I think would be the argument of a lot of people, So um, it's kind of annoying that this black box warning is just sort of a black box warning on the medicine rather than a black box warning for specific demographics taking the medicine. But most impactful, I think for sure, uh, this past year, So in episode 79, if you want to check out our discussion, it's helped me a lot when I'm discussing these medications
1: with patients. Very cool. All right. Now we're on to the next category. (laughs) Sorry about that. And this might be my favorite category because this is a new category and it includes the most important part of dermosphere. So, you know, Luke came up with the concept of Dermosphere, this is his baby, he invited me to be a, a co-host and I've greatly appreciated the opportunities that that's brought. And our wonderful group of medical students that helps us with things from maintaining social media to um, creating opportunities to work with guest hosts and things like that, Those they're a wonderful part of Dermosphere. The third most important part is our listeners, so our category now is going to honor our listeners, which is our listeners choice award. To do this, we put up some different survey kind of instruments on our social media platforms and allowed listeners to engage and vote for their most favorite um, articles and the candidates are update on what's the best psoriasis biologic. Episode 77, this is actually an update on an article that was previously reviewed that was also an award-winning article and discussed how the different psoriasis biologics can be beneficial, what their different strengths are, and potentially how to make the decision of which medication we can choose for each patient. We have a bit of an embarrassment of riches at this point with psoriasis biologics because it's been a very active area of drug development, and I'm grateful for that as therapeutics have also been brought forward for other conditions because of that. This study looked uh, again more recently at the new bio, newer biologics, what's available for use. Um, first author, April Armstrong, kind of a derm hero to me. I'm grateful for all of her work, and all of the other authors did a wonderful job as well. Their conclusions came out that the meta-analysis suggested Bridaliumab, Ducelcumab, and ixekizumab, and risankizumab. We're associated with the highest posi response in both short-term and long-term therapy. And we also did some analysis of the cost-effectiveness of these drugs. Um, the p- position of some of them shifted. Luke, you picked a new favorite. Your previous favorite from the original version of this article was Guselkumab, which is tremphia That's how we say it so we can remember that it is Guselkumab. Kind of reminds you of the Aflac duck. Tremphaya. So that's fun. And then, Luke, what was your new favorite? I feel like I remember, but I want to make sure.
0: Well, it's kind of a tie now. Risen Kizumab and Guselkumab were both about equally effective and both about as expensive. Brodalumab is about as effective, significantly cheaper, but you have to deal with this like REMS thing because of some suicide um, spikes in the trials that a lot of people feel were sort of untrue. So if you want to go through the Brodalumab- Risk mitigation thing with your patients, it might be the right choice. Otherwise, Risen Kizumab and Guselkumab are probably both about the same.
1: Brodalumab is Silic. I remember that you can go, like, Hey, bro, what a nice Silic blouse. <laughs> and then um, Risen Kizumab, of course, is Sky Rizzy. They named it Sky Rizzy to keep the Risen Kizumab kind of name in there because it had a lot of positive buzz when it was in its phase one, two, and three trials before it was named Sky Rizzy, so they wanted to keep that brand recognition, I think, which is... I actually asked a rep why on earth they named it Sky Rizzy because <laughs> I was like, this is a very strange name. And they're like, it's because we wanted to tie it to Riz and Kizumab.
0: They were like, do you think it's stranger than Tremphaya or Taltz? I mean, these are all weird.
1: They're all weird, but I felt like I felt like Sky Rizzy sounded like the name of an up-and-coming rap artist. <laughs> it's Like, hey, little Sky Rizzy here, or something like that. That sounded very much like an up-and-coming rap artist, didn't it, Luke? Okay, so... <laughs> The next articles were abracitinib versus dupilumab for atopic dermatitis out of episode 73. This was a study that looked head-to-head at abracitinib versus um, the previously, I I think, champion drug of atopic dermatitis dupilumab. So, as you know, um, abracitinib is a Janus kinase 1 inhibitor, and that reduces IL-4 and IL-13 signaling which is the pathomechanism by which we believe it helps atopic dermatitis. So, this was a head-to-head study of abracitinib against dupilumab. In the study, they did find that the higher dose, the 200 milligram, but not the 100 milligram dose of abracitinib was superior to dupilumab with respect to its response at week two, but neither of them differed from... So, neither dose protocol, though, differed from dupilumab um, at week 16. So, it seems to get patients better faster, which kind of makes sense by the pathomechanism of the two drugs. But the uh, eventual results were not terribly different, which is it's nice that both of them work very well. Um, So I thought that was a good review of this newer atopic dermatitis medication. And then Listener's Choice, also we had uh, great marks for the oral surveillance study of Janus kinase risks that we reviewed in episode 79, most recently reviewed on this episode of the podcast by our own Luke Johnson.
0: So what won for Listener's
1: Choice, Michelle? The runner-up was a tie. So we had a tie, a real honest to God tie between abracitinib versus dipilumab for atopic dermatitis in episode 73 and the oral surveillance study of Janus kinase risks in episode 79. And the winner, Luke, of course, is the update on what is the best psoriasis biologic. So I think people really do appreciate these articles that distill down what the strong points of different drugs in a similar um, class of medications to treat a certain condition are so people can make educated discussions with their patients and help them make a good decision.
0: And remember, this was an update on an article that we had originally discussed in episode 22. And that article actually won the best overall Dermy Award back in 2020. So quite the heavy hitter. We stand until
1: Armstrong here. We definitely do that.
0: (laughs) Our final category is best overall. And um, the nominees include Suicidality Decreases While on Isotretinoin from Episode 79. Again, the Oral Surveillance Study of jack Inhibitor Risks from Episode 79. Neurofibromatosis Type 1 Affects Income from Episode 72. And... Our discussion with Dr. Steve Feldman from episode 82. And our runner-up is NF1 affects income from episode 72. Michelle, you nominated this one.
1: I did. I thought that this was a novel concept to look at an inherited genetic disease and demonstrate that it contributes to economic inequality. So, this is something that I don't know has been considered before in the world of dermatology. NF1 is a significant condition that can increase the risk of many different kinds of cancer. Through this article, we also reviewed the updated information on cancer risk for patients with NF1 and kind of looked at the, for example, uptick in risk for breast carcinoma in young patients. Who have NF1 and the increased screening recommendations that are present for those patients, the patients also may su- may potentially suffer market losses. They might suffer um, unemployable uh, disability. They may have issues where they're not able to provide for their family, and it can even be generational in this circumstance. So this was a novel way to interrogate this in a condition that can affect multiple areas of a person's life, as well as highlighting both the updated diagnostic criteria, which include the bilaterality of the presentation to ensure that you're only diagnosing systemic NF1 in patients who have somatic disease and not patients who have mosaic disease or segmental disease. And then also kind of conceptualizing how this worked. The reason they were able to do this was because this study is out of the Finnish population and they have a very robust social um, data gathering program that is there because of how significant their social support services are in that particular country. So I thought it was very well done, very well thought out, and something we all need to consider when we're taking care of patients who have life-affecting, profound genetic dermatologic conditions. So I thought it was fascinating and very meritorious of discussion.
0: And our winner for best overall was our discussion with Dr. Steve Feldman. Woo! If you haven't listened to our discussion with him in episode 82, I recommend that you go do it. Uh, it's a great discussion, and he's just a really fun guy, also really smart guy, and he's focused a lot of his career on adherence and behavioral economics, and it's... Really interesting to think that despite all of our fancy new medications, we can perhaps make the most impact in a patient's disease by addressing adherence rather than spending millions of dollars on new drug development. So, thank you, Dr. Feldman, for joining us and congratulations on winning the best overall Dermy Award in 2022. Ooh, pimping Bell salute. <laughs> and that is our award ceremony, everybody congratulations again to all our nominees and winners and of course really we're all winners for hanging out together and learning about dermatology and thanks to you listeners for joining us today and every day and for voting in the listeners choice award of course and thanks of course to our institutions thank you to the university of utah for supporting the podcast and thank you to texas tech for lending us michelle We also have an expanding team of medical students who are helping us out with the show. We really appreciate all you guys and what you do. Our staff includes Morgan Dykeman, Guy Kusecki, Eleanor Markacci, Michael Birdsall, Aparna Nayak, Neha Deo, and Haley Walsh. Thanks very much. If you would like to find a list of all of our winners and nominees and links to all the articles, that's going to be up on our podcast, dermospherepodcast.com, which also has the rest of our archive as well as links to all of the articles, it's also a good way to reach out and say hello. Another good way to reach out and say hello is to find us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And in February, you can find us in Hawaii. We are going to be at the Hawaii Dermatology Seminar, and we thank them for uh, offering us a booth there. Never had a booth before, so don't know what we're going to do with it. We also have another podcast.
1: (laughs) Our other podcast is called SkinCast. It is a public-facing podcast. There are shorter episodes, 15 to 20 minutes each. Bite-sized content, usually devoted to a single topic or a small group of related topics per episode. Sample topics include contact dermatitis, acne and diet, hyperpigmentation, cosmeceuticals, hair loss, sunscreens. It's a nice place to send patients that have questions about different conditions or treatments, and it's also potentially useful for uh, medical students. Thanks again so much for
0: joining us, guys, and participating in the awards. We will see you in 2023.
1: Woo, in the year 2023.